Hello and welcome to the third season of Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose, in which we talk to some very special people about food, what it means to them, and the role it has played in their life. We ask about food memories and favorite recipes, must-have ingredients, and the dishes that represent comfort, celebration, or adventure, and find out a lot more about our guests in the process. Alison, hello. How are you doing? Hello. I'm all right, thank you. How are you? What have you been up to? Well, we are in holiday mode. We're in summer holiday mode in nice. the Famarewa household, which has been really nice, actually. I've been forcing myself to have a bit of time off and play around with the kids and just kind of, you know, really sort of take it easy and get into like chilled mode. We're at the point where it's still quite fun and it's a novelty. Uh, speak to me later on in the summer and uh, we'll see how we go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, not too bad. Lovely. Tell me, did you get the eggs? I did get the eggs. This was your mysterious package this week. Arrived with no explanation. Very intriguing. Was it some sort of message? Uh, I'm intrigued. I want to know more. I just wanted to send you and remind you what a perfect food an egg is. It's the ultimate all-in-one meal. And, you know, those ones that I've sent you are Longstock Gold, so they're free range, like all Waitrose own label eggs are. And they just have really beautiful shells. They're some of a sage green. Yeah, they are beautiful shells. I did notice that, yeah. There's a real unusual array of colours, which you wouldn't really expect when you kind of lift the top of an egg box. And the reason for that is if we made sure that they were all the same colour, they'd be wasted in there. So it's just how nature intended all the different colours are, just how they come. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't really thought of that. But you're right, I guess if you've got a kind of almost colour chart that you need to kind of hit, it means that there is bound to be ones that don't make the grade and are wasted. So yeah, that seems like a much more common sense way to do it. It's great. But actually, when you crack them open, have you cracked it open yet and seen the colour of that? golden yolk i have cracked some open yes yeah i kind of <laughs> yeah quite a relief that that i was allowed to crack them open and you weren't <laughs> you know i've not wasted them but yes no i have cracked them open and uh yeah they're absolutely gorgeous like they've got those really deep vivid orange golden yolks that are just so enticing to like look at that real sort of sunburst of yellow what did you do with them So I would love to say that I did something really kind of involved and clever and maybe refined with them, but I found myself really craving a fried egg sandwich uh, with bacon (laughs) and the works. I hardly ever have them these days, but I started off with those beautiful eggs. I fried them to a real sort of lacy crisp. I got like some nice sort of squidgy soft muffins. I put Mm. one of those in there. I got some crisp bacon. I added hot sauce which I was quite pleased with. Um, I don't know where that craving came from, but it was quite pronounced. It was quite specific in my mind that it needed to be hot sauce Mm -hmm. and a little bit of cheddar. And it was incredible. Honestly, it was um, delicious. The eggs were brilliant and the rest of it just absolutely hit the spot. So yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for, uh, for making that moment possible. Good. And Obviously, that was quite a uh, down and dirty, uh, unrefined way of eating. Uh But uh, somebody who is at the complete opposite end of the scale is today's guest, who is Adjua Ando, who plays Lady Danbury in Bridgerton. 
And this is a slightly interesting one. Yeah, because I'm I wasn't able to be there, so I'd re- there's so many questions I want to ask you. I know I was alone. I was I was bereft. So tell me, what did she say about Bridgerton? You know, what about the food? I'm tempted to play it down and be like, oh yeah, she wasn't that great, but she was brilliant. She talked a lot about Bridgerton. She talked about the incredible phenomenon it's been, 82 million viewers, uh, I think, which is just, just insane. Amazing. And as she pointed out, what's really great about it is that obviously it was this delicious escapist romp. But also, there's so much that's really progressive and radical and important about the way in which it is representative of different sorts of actors and uh, has people of colour in starring roles. And uh, she really pointed out that there is historical precedent for that in a really interesting way. And she's kind of, Mm. you know, really dug into that. And that seemed like a, a, a real sense of personal pride for her. She also talked about growing up in uh, Gloucestershire, a very rural environment. She compared it to cider with Rosie and, um, that real idyllic backdrop. She'd go next door to the, the neighboring farm to get that week's groceries. And wow. it just sounds like it gave her this lifelong knowledge of where food comes from and yeah. connection to food, which has also manifested in the relationship she's had with uh, Fair Trade, which wow. we also kind of talked about. Um, so yeah, much as I'd love to play it now, she was, she was pretty great. But I tried my best to um, to represent you as well. How do you get on with the kitchen grills? And uh, Oh I yeah, no, we didn't bother. We didn't bother. Didn't bother. No, I'm kidding. Of course we did. Of course we did. <laughs> no, I was actually quite nervous about that, assuming that mantle, because that is uh, your thing and you did it so brilliantly. But yes, we did do her kitchen grill it was really good she kind of gave an insight into her sort of uh, habits and different tastes and how she eats in her home in southeast london and her family and she also talked really movingly and affectingly about her son who is transgender and uh, his transition and the whole family supporting him through that journey and she just talked about it in such an honest open way and just the importance of letting your child thrive no matter what their needs are or what they need to kind of be their truest self and it was it was really really great to hear her talk about that and I'm really appreciative that she that she let us in on that and she she talked food as well like it's you know I I think uh, it was a shame that you weren't there but um Maybe we'll, maybe we'll get her next time. Did you get her favourite store cupboard ingredient as well? I did. I did. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I did. Panicking now, but I think I did. Yeah, Can't wait <laughs> to <like>. have a listen. <laughs> but yeah, she was really great. And uh, it was just amazing to, to sort of have somebody that's on such a huge show and such a phenomenon and yeah. has such kind of clarity about that moment and uh, has, has got a real sense of where she came from where she's going and uh, what she's got to be eating along the way, to be honest. So um, here we go. This will be a surprise for you as well, but I I ensure I you it's good. Can't wait. Um, here is our conversation with Adjoa Ando. Adjoa Ando, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us, for joining just me on this uh, rare occasion. Are you midway through filming Bridgerton at the moment or are you, are you done on season two? Oh, no, 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 no. Season two, obviously everything is just COVID impacted. So um, we're a quarter of the way through season two. You know, we, we finished season one just before, literally at the end of February 2020. So I went to Ghana straight after we finished 
and then I flew back into London eleven days later, and then we were then we were on full panic mode um, for the lockdown and um, panic. I meant to say pandemic, <laughs> but you know maybe I yeah, panic is what I meant. Freudian slip there. <laughs> exactly, and uh, and so yeah, so getting season two up and running. I mean, first of all, I think because you know because the show dropped on Christmas Day and it was just not the. Uh, Christmas, uh, our mighty leaders had promised us. I, I, I think we had a bit of a, we're having a terrible time. Oh, thank God! Here's something joyful. Banks for the show. So, um, so that so that when we got back into filming, it was sort of all full yeah. steam ahead. What has that been like from your point of view? Kind of having such a huge success, like it's kind of one of Netflix's biggest ever shows. It was this huge phenomenon. May I correct you, Jimmy? It, it is. is. How dare Netflix's I? Yeah, it is. Muck biggest of shows. Is it 83 million people, like kind of globally? Uh, I think it was 82, I think it was 82 million in the first wow, 28 days. unbelievable. So what is it like to be part of something like that, to be a significant part of something like that? I think it's a bit like the pandemic in terms of, you know how time feels really long and really short at the same time? There's a sort of elast- elasticity to our perceptions of what the world is at the moment. Yeah. And I think it's been the same with um, with the show, really, because on the one hand, the show's been nominated, I've been nominated, actors, various cast members have been nominated, showrunners been nominated, and loads of people have watched it, it's on the news, it's blah, blah, blah. And on the other hand, you're doing it all from your bedroom. So, uh, you know, hey, I'm at an award ceremony, but actually I'm in my bedroom or, you know, or I'm in my study or whatever it may be. Yeah, so it's sort yeah. of, it's like, uh, it's the genie. It's the genie from Aladdin, isn't it? It's Robin Williams saying something about universal powers in a tiny little lamp. It's that sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's sort of, yeah. it's got that elasticity to it. So, so it's been quite surreal, really. And, and for you, as somebody who, you know, you've had a, a rich, varied, really prestigious career, not just on the screen, but on stage, working with directors like Clint Eastwood, part of iconic shows like Casualty. Um, we were talking just before we came on about Thunderbirds Are Go, which is possibly not the one that everyone would go for, but as Listen, you know, my take kid it. loved it. So I'll I'm, take I'm, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you sort of think that there was one of these still left in terms of, a phenomenon like this, oh my and God. With that kind this, of level. I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping there's loads of these still left, frankly, because I've been, I, you know, I've been working professionally since 1984. You can just, you can enjoy this in a less frenzied way. I think there's that going on, and because I do lots of different work, it's it's really nice to have the breadth and interest in in the uh, in the work still coming at me. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that that's really nice. I mean, I think for me, the game changer of this show, Jimmy, I think it is a game changer for uh, drama going forward. That sounds a bit grand, but I do think that mm. is that, you know, my mother's a history teacher. I've grown up reading all those romantic historical novels, uh, Jean Plady and Georgette Hay. That's my that's my g- generation of gravy. But um, uh, and then you'd always see, oh, here's another costume drama. And there's a little bit of me that would always go. Yep. So no work for actors of colour there. Moving on. <laughs> yes. Um, I don't think that will ever happen again. Yeah. I yeah. don't think you will ever get another period piece costume drama where the truth of the reality of that period was that people of colour were there, which is historically accurate. I mean, every white costume drama you've ever seen historically 
inaccurate. Yeah. So for me, I think the game-changing aspect of this show, um, the fact that it it will change the way, and it's already you can see that with the work that's coming now, the work that's already um, on on screen across well Western Western dramas anyway, that's already changed. So I'm really delighted about that. I'm delighted because you know. As I always say, Bridgerton isn't a documentary, um, <laughs> but it does acknowledge a reality in its own on steroids, dramatised, <laughs> fabulous, schwangy way. And I love that. But, you know, yeah. Queen Charlotte is a is a real thing. She was mixed race. I yes. just read the most amazing, uh, recorded rather, the most amazing book by a woman called Tina Andrews called Charlotte Sophia, which is all about her Moorish heritage yeah. and the way she was responded to in this country yeah. uh, when she came over and abroad, you know, people complained about her, you know, so it's, uh, I, I've really enjoyed being part of a show that is, uh, 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 you know, at one level, just a joyous romp yeah, with yeah. delicious fabric and delicious locations yeah. and delicious intrigue. And then another level is sort of folding in, you know, sexuality, women's desire for emancipation, uh, race and class and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a really, really good point to make. And I think that game-changing aspect shouldn't get lost. It's, it's mm. significance. And you're right, for so long, um, you know, I've written about TV and covered arts writing in the past. It was a kind of way to lock kind of actors of colour out by stealth that kind of period dramas would always have like a similar, you know, uh, would be homogenous in that way. And also to lock audiences out mm. and to lock history out. You know, I think it's really easy for, um, you know, people on this island to say, you know, go back where you came from. If they think that we all just got off the boat in 1948 with a windrush, which, you know, as people of African heritage... You and I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or rather, our antecedents didn't. And yeah, people yeah, have come yeah. here in. Yeah. But, you know, to, 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 to have historical drama that goes, oh, really? There were people of colour there? Well, let me think about that. Mm, because mm. actually the fact was a fifth of the British Navy was African. Yeah. If you go yeah. to Nelson's column, a black mariner is holding the dying Nelson on the freeze at the foot of the column. There were 20,000 black people just in London alone yeah, yeah. In, the, in the period that our show set in. That's the only African heritage. I'm not even talking about, you know, uh, Asia, yeah, which is another yeah, yeah, huge yeah. Uh, yeah. demographic here. Yeah. So I think if it allows audiences to reflect on that, if it makes us all kind of connect with each other and realise that we have a long and rich connection yeah. as a nation then it, you know it's all good you touched on your upbringing there your mum was a history teacher you're saying um your dad he worked was it for in bristol bristol aerospace was it or? He, he worked for yeah so my dad was a journalist in ghana mm. um it's all he'd ever wanted to do so he 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 went to the first journalism school that was set up there mm. and then because of the sort of ebb and flow of politics he had to leave in 58 he yeah. came here went to fleet street was not going to get a job as a chief sub-editor on a national newspaper yeah in Fleet Street in 1958, <laughs> yeah. um, and so ended up becoming an accountant and worked for British Aerospace, yes. uh, who built Concorde. So wow. I grew up in my childhood thinking, my dad built Concorde. <laughs> no, he just, he did numbers. So, uh, yeah, so so dad was an accountant and mum was a school teacher. In fact, she was, she was my school teacher at secondary school. Oh, fantastic. And what did food look like at home when you were growing up? It was quite a, was it quite a rural backdrop? I grew up in 1960s uh, Gloucestershire, 
Mm. So um, it was like cider with Rosie. <laughs> and seriously, it was, yeah. you know, um, I, 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 was, I was talking to somebody the other day about, you know, our sense of where food comes from. I would walk up to the back door of the Robinson's farm up the road with a maroon shopping bag. This was my Saturday morning job. And I would buy onions and the carrots and the potatoes and the sprouts or whatever else we were having that week from Mrs. Robinson. And she had one of those split door back uh, doors. You know, you can open the top bit like a stable door. And she had a set of scales and you would go up with your cash and she had little, you know, reserves of cash. And she would pour, she would, she would weigh the things in the metal um, uh, scales and then she would pour it into the big maroon shopping bag. And I would stagger home with my <laughs> potatoes and my leeks or whatever it was. And that's, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's where we got our vegetables yeah, from. Yeah. My, my best friend was the butcher's daughter. When we got bored, we'd go and sit on the back wall at the back of their place and watch our older brother wringing chickens' necks. Oh, wow. wow. I went out with dairy farmers and pig farmers. Uh, I can milk cows by hand. That's wow. my. Uh, I used to go blackberry picking with the old lady who lived across the wall, who was born in the late 1800s. Oh, that's you incredible. Know, and would tell me, and who'd lived in this village all her life and knew yeah. all the best spots. So my childhood, it was tricky being the only black people for about mm. 70 million miles. Uh, but on the other hand, it was bucolic. Yeah. And um, I I love nature. I, you know, in my own garden, I've got raspberries and strawberries and blackberries and and rocket and broccoli and just because that's that's kind of how i grew up did that knowledge of the produce did that translate to wanting to cook were you kind of very interested in what was going on in the kitchen and what kind of things were being cooked at home well it was very it was interesting because obviously because my dad's Ghanaian, my mum is liverpudlian english white and uh, from a, 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 my, my, my English grandmother, great cook, uh, Nana's butterfly cakes are, um, are still um, a treasured memory for all of the fam- She's a great. She was a great cook. Yeah. My mum's my a great cook. And then my, you know, my dad's sister, uh, my auntie Nana, came to stay with us. And um, she would so- show mum how to prepare chicken in a Ghanaian way. Yeah. You know, so uh, my childhood, we, you know, we did the things that you just take for granted, like... When you get to the chicken bone, you chew down the bone and you suck the marrow out. Do you <laughs> yeah. not? That's yeah. what you do. Yeah, it's it's very much the the way of things in a in a West African out household. Exactly. I'd say. But was that something that you just were introduced to early on that your dad was adamant that you kind of had that? It wasn't even adamant. It was just what you did because you know we you we we model our behaviour on the behaviour we see around us. That's what my dad did. That's what I did. We used to eat food with our hands. You know, we'd eat rice and everything with our and stew and um, um, corned beef hash was a big favourite of dad's. Oh, Grating the nutmeg, doing all that stuff. You know, so we we had a real mixture of um, English food and Ghanaian food. Yeah, and I didn't even know that it was different. I didn't know. Oh, that's English food. And that's Ghanaian food. It was just like that's the food. And 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 I I think there was something rather. I'm sort of rather beautiful about that because it was at a time where we didn't so much have a delineated sense of of heritage politics or talking about one's identity. You just sort of got on with it. So all of it, it was all sort of smushed in together. I think I suddenly became self-conscious when um, at secondary school in uh, 
home economics and domestic science classes, we were told we were going to be cooking a stew or something. I would bring all the seasoning in and cook it like I would cook it at home. On the coach going home, people would be like, oh, that smells really weird. Uh, you know, there'd be all that sort of stuff. Right, and that's yeah, when that I suddenly stigma, went, what yeah. do you mean it? I, I, well, it wasn't even, I didn't even think of it like stigma. I just thought of it like, I don't, what? It, does, it just smells like, it smells right. It, I just cooked it. Yeah. Really interestingly, when we were in Ghana, just after we finished Bridgerton, so my dad's in his late 80s now. Mm. And uh, so it was me, dad, a couple of my kids. My brother had come over from America and uh, dad was cooking for us. And I sat in the kitchen with dad cooking yam mm. and tomatoes and onions but just the way he seasoned it there was suddenly a smell and and you know the way that food can really put you yeah, in a place yeah the smell and then the taste of the way he cooked this really simple food i was like six or something again wow, wow. it was really i was you know that's like a good 50 years on yeah um, yeah i was really taken aback by how profoundly um, I was, it made me cry. Yeah, wow, wow. Just, I was like, oh, that's my daddy and that's me and I'm in the kitchen and, and the smell, it was it was really quite amazing. No, it can it can overwhelm you, can't it? Really, yeah, yeah. Mm. and I tried to replicate it and I can't quite do it the way he does it. Mm. And also it made me think things like, my dad is the age he is. One day I won't have that exact taste again because he won't be here to cook it. Yeah, yeah. So many people have got stories of, please set this recipe down. Please, like, I want to preserve this. Have you had that throughout your life? Of No, because dad, dad would just be like, well, you just, just cut it and, you know, <laughs> just, he'd be like, it's not a recipe. Just do the... Yeah. It's, it's just the nuance of down? his touch. You just do yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, innate. Yeah. Uh, you're a vegetarian. I, I, I've been a vegetarian for 42 years. What was the kind of impetus behind that? Was it the closeness to the butchers and the kind of the, the reality of, of it? I don't think it was that because the farming that I saw around me growing up was not intensive farming. It was sort of local family farms. Animals had, in the main, a good life. Yeah, yeah. And a, and a proper, quick, easy death. You know, I I see nothing wrong with eating meat intrinsically. I just I don't think I do. I see a lot wrong with the quality of the life of the animal, mm. and I see a lot wrong with. Uh, so, so I hate intensive farming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I you know um, I think you know we should be eating fish and meat a couple of times a week because it's expensive. Yeah, yeah. And when it's cheap, that means somebody's paying the cost of the cheapness of the food. And that's the animals. What I'm really fascinated by is um, food as an actor and uh, on set. And if you're in a play, like what status does it have in that context? Because sometimes the food can be incredible, like uh, on, on sets and on Hollywood productions and things like that. Yes. So the best food I've ever eaten was on a Clint Eastwood set. What sort of thing was it? Well, what, what it was just remember? everything was so, I mean... Uh, his sets are are very orderly. People work efficiently, swiftly, and you you never overrun. You mm. quite often finish early. Right, There's a proper wow. break for lunch because what's happening a lot now? People are trying to get as much time on set as they possibly can, so they have this thing called continuous lunch. Right, and that means is you don't stop work for lunch. 
you have to grab your food as an, as you can. You may have half an hour if you're lucky. Yeah. But uh, on Clint's set, you stop for an hour. <laughs> and, it, there, it, you know, the food was delicious. It was fresh. There was sashimi. There was uh, um, every salad you could imagine. Loads of fresh fruit, loads of grains. It was just like it was heaven. But the thing about it also, I, I just think, there's the psychological element of food. Mm. If you've been up since stupid o'clock mm. and your day is long, those moments when you look forward to food, it's a great encourager for all the cast and crew. You know, it's something that makes you feel loved. Um, it makes you feel taken care of. Yes. It fuels you in a really positive way. And it just lifts your day. Yeah, yeah, completely. Actually, what I really want to know is yes. the cakes and the food on Bridgerton, like mm -hmm. in front of the camera. Talk us through that and the kind of Regency food. Did you kind of dive into that whole world and what what goes on into the preparation of those things? You can't touch the food. <laughs> that's, that's not food. That's a prop. <laughs> but listen, having said that, the people who make the food are skilled food people. You know, they're skilled bakers and glazers and um, designers and sources of um, beautiful, intricate. I mean, if you saw the, the detail, I, you know, I, I, one of the things I'm really fascinated by Bridgerton is the detail yeah. of design. And yeah. that goes from the, the pleating on the back of one of my coats to the Angelica stalks on the top of a putty fork. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? And everything in between. The the the, the livery, the, the the bridles on the horses, yeah. the, the set design. Every, every every aspect of the show is incredibly detailed. And the food is 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 given the same respect and time and um skill as every other thing. So food is a set dressing. There will be pastry makers and bakers and who knows what else mm. up at two in the morning, <laughs> freshly making stuff. So it's wow. good to go by 8 a.m. on set. Yeah. And that yeah. is a mission because they're somewhere they have to transport. It has to be. I mean, I can't tell you how hard those people work to make it look as stunning as it does it's really fascinating did you dive into the it sounds like you did in terms of the history and how much more culturally diverse like uh england was at that time than than a lot of people realized did you dive into the whole sort of every aspect of it uh, yes i did dive into all of that because i'm a bit of a dweeby anoraki <laughs> person and my mother is a history teacher yes yeah um so you know <laughs> your I mother's got, uh, daughter i am my mother's daughter i <laughs> Uh, uh, my my growing up was a mixture of sort of medieval tapestry <laughs> and um, carvings from Ghana. You know that's 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 how we roll. So um, I so I, I love all of that and it, and every stately home we've been in, I've sort of been a bit like a. I'd have my camera with me and I'd be focused because there'll always be somebody black in a painting or a, a First Nation person from the Americas or, you know, a, car a carving of the head of an African woman or in everywhere you go, we are present, hiding in plain sight. Yeah, yeah. And so I, 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 I really, I really love that. And, and I just feel, I suppose I feel like those connections, um, those connections with that that wider colonized enslaved relationship trading relationship those connections still resonate with me and i suppose you know since we're talking food there 
they're part of what's pulled me into being a fair trade ambassador, for example. Yeah. Those trading connections with countries across the globe who make and provide the food that's uh, that, that lots of people don't even know where food comes from these days. Yeah, I was going to ask you about your fair trade links. It's a real long-standing relationship and passion. And I think, yeah, you're right, it's really important because I think maybe there's an assumption these days, oh, yeah, fair trade, that's all been sorted out, that's kind of been done or whatever. But this, these are active problems that need that need our attention, aren't they? They do. And I think as, you know, as we become more globalised and small, small producers are t- told they can't have access to global markets unless they open up their markets, which means they suddenly get flooded. You know, rice in America is subsidised. So if you're a small rice farmer in Kumasi, there's no way that you're going to be able to compete on price. There's no way that you're going to be able to market and advertise your produce the way that a big American corporation can. Yeah. I'm really interested in the ways that we help to sustain people. Yeah. And that we lean into sustain, you know, living life in a sustainable way rather than in a way that's about infinite growth. You know, we're, we're, the planet is a finite resource. And, and I think until we get our heads around the fact that growth is not always good, sometimes growth isn't good. Maintenance is good, mm, mm. you know, because growth somewhere means reduction somewhere else. Yeah. So I, I, I hugely support fair trade. I, I remember going around um, uh, wineries when I was uh, filming in South Africa uh, in 2010 um, and going and seeing the difference between the living conditions of somebody working on a fair trade winery and somebody working uh, on a neighbouring not fair trade winery. I mean, as really stark as in the fair trade one, they have running water. Right. Um, wow. They have glass yeah. in the windows. They have a door on the front of their property. They uh, have uh, got enough fair trade premium so that they can buy a minibus. Why a minibus? Because that minibus can go into the town, which is like 20 miles away. Yeah. Uh, because you're on a big wine estate. Yeah. They can buy food in bulk. They can bring it back, have a little shop, and people can buy f- foodstuffs cheaper yeah. and access yeah. it locally. And, you know, so it's really basic stuff. It's healthcare. It's um, women's empowerment. It's finding new technological ways to solve local problems, like repurposing um, animal waste or waste vegetation mm. to make gas that then fuels cookers. It's little um, saving schemes that women have got control over um, so that families are, uh, are supported. It's girls getting education. It's, it's, it's not having enslaved children on cocoa plantations in Ghana, which is, you know, for all the poster child thing that Ghana is, there is still slavery, you know, on, and, and it's slavery that makes chocolate for us. So we give our kids chocolate that's been produced by children of the same age who aren't going to school, who are living in terrible poverty and will never have the life chances that we have. I wanted to talk about your TEDx talk that you gave like um, five or six years ago, which was really powerful and uh, full of unbelievable wisdom and um i also happen to have read your husband's book howard cunnell is your husband he's an yeah, author yeah. fantastic writer that book fathers and sons you're fathers talking about fathers and sons yeah yeah which, um, oh thank which, you jimmy it, it was honestly it stayed with me for years and years and how would you describe it the, the book first of all from your point of view it- yeah it it was um a, a, a sort of broad memoir um and some of it slightly fictionalized um to expand on a truthful 
kernel, I guess. In essence, it's called Fathers and Sons. And it's about it's how does a, a fatherless boy who becomes a father to a girl who then transitions to becoming a boy mm. deal with all of that? Yeah, yeah. It, it's about how, you know, what, what does it mean to be a man? To be a, to be male in the world, um, what are you supposed to be? How are you supposed to perform? You know, uh, and I think it, I think it was making a real plea to just say, you're a hum, a unique human being, and you should run to no lights but your own. You know, um, you be whatever boy you want to be. You be a boy in a dress. You be a boy that does embroidery. You be a, you know, you you be a boy that does football and knitting yeah you know you know to be who you be because that's that's a spirit you've been blessed with and that's that's where you should be going and anything that blocks the healthy development of who you are as a as a unique soul um should be batted away uh, and so not having a father on whom to model yourself mm. where do you get your guidance does it make you try and be more of what you think the stereotype of a bloke is? Yeah, yeah. Um, does it make you feel lost and insecure? What does it do? And where do you look for that guidance? And and I suppose that's what the book explores. And then having come to your own sense of who you might be, then to have a child, I mean, who's always... So this sort of blends my TED Talk with howard's book in a way we should double back the kernel of of truth within the memoir is obviously um what you talk about in your ted talk which is um your son's transitioning and your um, that's right and you talk with with such wisdom and such eloquence about about that experience but also just just more broadly that you know we all want to be judged beyond what the world sees i call it the fleshy overcoat <laughs> that says oh you're this color or you're this gender yes. or blah 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 yeah. blah or you're thin or you're large or you're whatever it is you know or you're or you're differently abled in whatever way this is this is just my my two piece worth that stuff is not who you are um that stuff can shape how the world responds mm. to you and that impact of how the world responds will inevitably have an impact on how you develop. Yeah. But it's not intrinsically who you are. I think, you know, I think about the little, I think about little me lying in, in long grass on a sunny day and just watching buttercups waving above my face <laughs> or, you know, um, big grass seeds and looking up at the sky and looking at the shape of the clouds. That doesn't have a race or a gender or a colour, or a religion, or a sexuality, or anything. That is just what is just, is just my soul gazing out in wonder at the world around mm, me. Mm. And I think at some level, with all the work that I do, with all my experiences within my own family and beyond, it's the thing that I would push the hardest for. And it's the thing that makes me go, that stereotype of that person over there who we may go oh you're that sort of person oh you're a white middle class man who went to Eton and you're in banking I'd have nothing in common with you no at some point that person is a tiny soul lying in the grass looking at the clouds in the sky and you can replicate that for every single human being anywhere in the world at some level we're all caught in the wonder of, of, of being alive you know that thing Nelson Mandela always said about not hiding your light mm. Don't hide your light. Um, so anything that I can do in my life, in my work, to, to 
bang the drum for not hiding our light and allowing people to flourish with the gifts that they have been given is what I want to do. So to, 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 to go back to my TED talk, I had a kid uh, who was born one gender who always resonated as a boy, although born a girl. I always would, would miss uh, pronoun him. Yeah. Uh, I would always c- call him by my brother's, you know, when you've got lots of kids, you always do that anyway. Yeah, don't you? yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was always called by my my mother's sister's name before she got to me. And <laughs> yeah. Eileen and Lois don't sound anything like Agile. Um, uh, but, but I think um, it's only when you become a parent that you understand that, that the names are kind of coming from the same place in a weird way, exactly. like the same emotional place. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, so what was really interesting to me was here was a kid who was supposed to be this gender who flatly refused to ever wear, you know, wouldn't wear girls' underwear, had Superman duvets, mm. played football, mm. was a great football player, played football for Fulham, danced with the Royal Ballet, all sorts of things like that, um, who absolutely resonated as not uh, the gender they were born into. Petition the primary school headmasters to let have girls be allowed to wear trousers is, is, as a uniform, all that sort of, from, you know, from really little. So yeah. that's not coming from anybody else. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and um, and that was all fine until you hit puberty, and then it's a problem because suddenly you're supposed to jump through a different kind of hoop because you can be a tomboy, you can be a tomboy until that point. It's fine, um, but then you're supposed to jump through different hoops, and then that became a problem, and that became a problem at school because uh, I sent my kids to an all girls Church of England school, um, uh, and um, that became a, a, a problem in life, um, mm. and. I think the parent's job is to have their kid thrive. That's your only job. You know, you can't do it for them. They will be the personality they're going to be. Your job is to encourage um, their light to yeah. shine as brightly yeah. as it can, to stop them being hit by a truck. That's that's the gig. That's what you've got to do. <laughs> Raise them up, ship them out. And if that means that you suddenly have to get on the fight for trans rights bus, yeah. get on the bus. <laughs> and so that's that's what we did. Yeah. As yeah. a family. And and also you have to understand you have other children and the knock-on effect for them yeah. because the oxygen gets sucked out. Yeah, of course. In, in quite a strong, in quite a strong, and it's like the other children are like, hello, hello, I, I, I'm here too, you know. I may have things I need you to address. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's a huge juggling act. And, of course, yeah. we, we, we don't get it right all the time. Um, but that's part of life too. Yeah, just hearing, uh, I think people are going to get so much from you sharing and talking about it right from your TEDx talk up to this conversation and it's all the more impressive that you've you know worked so much and done such great work as an actor like while also you know uh, being like going through this this with your family and kind of learning as as you go and sort of responding to, to but jimmy yeah. i think i i think everybody's going through all this stuff all the time all, all of us i mean i i i don't i where is this normal family or this this normal person i i've yet to meet them in nearly 60 years i've yet to meet them i i think i think we're i think human beings we are incredible the amount of stuff that we are constantly juggling and i think the world is becoming more and more intense and i think what's been um really interesting profoundly interesting for all of us during the pandemic is suddenly the frenzy stopped for a minute and suddenly for a while, every day felt like a Sunday afternoon in my childhood in the Cotswolds. <laughs> yeah. yes. I could hear the birds tweet. There were no cars on the road and there was nothing going on. 
Um, I loved it. <laughs> Obviously, the kids are grown up now, but what sort of things do you eat? What are the treats that you all crave? What's the comfort food that you all kind of go to? Well, when I was growing up, the comfort food was the predicting meal, which my mother made every summer holiday, school holiday. She was a teacher, so we'd all be at home together. And it was called the predicting meal because it always came out. You could predict it. And what it was, was mashed potato, <laughs> proper mashed potato, um, Maris Pipers or King Edwards, mashed um, into a creamy, buttery, milky, oh, black pepper, fantastic fondant. And then it was tinned garden peas. But they had to be, not the, <laughs> not the sort of um, the olivey green ones. It had to be the really green, green like right, petit pois yeah. ones, but they weren't petit pois. They were garden peas. That's all I can remember. They were tinned garden peas <laughs> and it was a white sauce with tuna fish. Wow. Um, and black pepper. That was a predicting meal. And while I was still eating fish, <laughs> the predicting, the predicting meal, meal I would make it for my kids because my mum always made it for us. So I don't do, I don't make it uh, so much. Although I, I will still cook meat and fish for other people. I just won't eat it myself. Right. But, um, yeah. but the mashed potato thing is a long lived love um, also risotto I love a mushroom risotto those sorts of things roast potatoes we love roast potatoes and Howard is the king of roast potatoes in fact he is the he's the roast king for those who are having roast and Daisy's a vegan so in our house you know there's a whole range of food requirements that are needed which is pretty typical I imagine again I, you I know, think so more about, and more you know, now no... but we tend to just sit we we tend to you know sitting down to meals is not an everyday occurrence and I think that's a shame. I wish it were. But everybody's on different times and um, they eat differently. So trying to get that, I don't know, get your Sunday lunch in or that one day a week is really important. Yeah. And it kind of comes back to the the weird gift if you were fortunate enough um, during lockdown to be safe and secure and with the people you love. To, no one's got any other plans. So you're, you've got to be together and you've got to eat together and talk together. Um, Alison normally asks this question, but I get to ask it this time. Is there, a, is there a store cupboard ingredient or a larder staple that you always need to have in the house? Well, there's a few things. I'll just give <laughs> you my basics. Um, so okay. I am the queen of broccoli. There will always be broccoli in my house because, you know, it's got calcium in it. It's a great brassica. You can do loads of stuff, have it raw, steam it, stick it in a stir fry, whatever. I, I'm amazed my children still eat broccoli because that was like... Look at my face. Eat the broccoli. Eat it. Eat it. So there's always broccoli. But in my cupboard, there is always, uh, being a good Ghanaian daughter, there's always ginger. My dad was of the school that, you know, if your leg's fallen off, have some ginger. It will be fine. So have some ginger. You'll be fine. So yeah. always ginger, always garlic, yeah. always chili flakes, always red onions, always tamari. Those are absolute basic staples. I can't cook without them. Um, and also garam masala. I'm a big garam masala fan. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, um, I am going to ask you to embrace the wonder of our kitchen grill segment. So quick fire, feel free to elaborate. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Ooh, Decent coffee. Nice. Not freeze, not freeze dry. I can't stand that. No. <laughs> I want righteous, Proper. fair trade coffee. You can grind those beans. I like a strong coffee. I want it to taste like coffee. How do you have it? Do you have milk as well? Oat milk? Yeah, I, I have, I've got a little, um, you know, the little Italian uh, coffee makers that are in this sort of yes, hexagonal. Yeah, I can't, top. What yeah, are they yeah, called? Yeah. I can't remember what they're called. Yeah. That. I have that strong mm, with milk. Fantastic. Um, fruit or veg? Oh, 
veg, actually. Yeah. If I had to go I one or the other, so. it'd be veg. With the broccoli. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, yeah, as Queen of Broccoli, it would be. Queen of, just call might, me Queen yeah, of Brock. You might, uh, yeah, your crown might be in danger if you chose fruit there. Uh, mash or chips? Again, I feel like I know the answer to this one. What do you mean by mash? Do you mean mashed potatoes? Yeah, I think mash. Or do you mean that mash where they chop all sorts of other stuff no, into it? No, I think mash or chips, like uh, mashed potatoes or, or chips. Now, now I'm going to go a good chip. Mm. I don't mean French fries. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Right. I mean a good fat chip that is like um, fluffy on the inside yeah. and crisp on the outside. <laughs> and I'll probably go mayonnaise. Right, yeah. I'll, I'll, no salt and vinegar. You're not going to go that way. You're not going to go um, chip shop. You're going to you know, go mayonnaise. I was in, I was in Germany, uh, this is about 1975, and I remember it like a, an apocryphal moment. <laughs> I was in a big square in this town called Ludenscheid and there was a chip van and I was queuing for chips. I must have been, I don't know, 13 and I got to front of the queue and and they said, um, you know, they handed me a chip. I like, uh, have the Essig? Sie will Essig? Have you, have you got vinegar? She wants vinegar? <laughs> Nein, kein Essig? Wir haben Mayonnaise. I was like, was? Mayonnaise? Yeah, Mayonnaise. Okay, das will ich probieren. Mayonnaise, genau. Uh, so, and that, that was me and mayonnaise. And I just have this image. It wasn't like this. I have this image like it was the Simpsons and there was a big crowd going, Essie, Essie. And, um, the yeah. talk so, of the uh, town, uh, like the girl who the talk came of to the town, town and wanted vinegar. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, fried or poached? Oh, God. Um, boiled. Sorry. <laughs> uh, fried egg. <laughs> poached egg. Really? I Not don't for like you. A, ru- a runny yolk. Right. Baguette or sourdough? Mm. These are interesting, mm. aren't they? I think I'd have to go for a really good French baguette. Ah. Very nice. Um, butter or olive oil? Butter. Always butter. I do butter. love olive oil. Mm, that's mm, got to but, be butter. Oh, no, it's really difficult, isn't it? I, I like olive oil with a tiny bit of soy sauce in it and then dip dog. Soy dip sauce? Dip dog your sourdough. In, wow. Yeah, man. Oh, wow. I was thinking balsamic, but yeah, soy sauce. Next no, 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 no. Okay. Soy sauce. Soy wow. sauce. But it's the same thing, isn't it? It's salty oil, yeah, which, yeah, is, yeah. which is salted yeah. butter. Um, <laughs> okay, I haven't fantastic. really given you an answer. No, there, I but. like that. No, no, no. I think, I think you said... I think both, but yeah, I think butter was the first one you went for, so I'll take that. Chocolate or crisps? Chocolate. That was quick, yeah. Just a really not, good, yeah. Um, chocolate all the way, like seventy percent cocoa, mm. nearly tiny bit milk, but kind of quite strong. Right, yeah, chocolate, yeah, yeah. That kind of bitter edge, yeah, I'm yeah. With you. Uh, spicy or mild? Spicy. <laughs> spicy move on mild smiled nah man nah. Um, and then restaurant meal or sofa supper restaurant meal what what's your favorite kind of restaurant or you know you don't need to name specifics but what are the ones that you're really drawn to and that you love i like ones with a very broad menu where mm. there's uh, uh when i say broad menu i mean um i am going to name one can i yeah of course you can yeah, so there's a, a, a small sort of Turkishy Mediterranean chain called Taz. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Or, or Ev is the <laughs> one I, I normally get, but it's the same thing. Um, and what I love about it is I, lo- I because I'm so, oh, I'm vegetarian, I don't like <laughs> to have wheat, and it's quite picky. Somewhere like that, the food is fresh and delicious, and there's something that ev- for, there will be something on that menu that everybody. Well, they'll, everyone will find something they like. I really hate that thing where people, they end up having to eat something they don't really want because there's just nothing else on the menu. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. like 
I like a table to be a welcoming place where everybody feels included. Sitting on a sofa, I'll just be eating cheese out of the packet, mate. <laughs> I'm sorry. Gnawing a giant <laughs> block of cheese. Um, yeah. And then finally, uh, recipe or freestyle? <laughs> uh, I'm rubbish at following recipes. <laughs> I, I intend to, but I end up freestyling. Apart from cakes, I'm quite strict on a cake recipe. Yeah, you need and to a, be, And a good, um, uh, a, good, uh, a good risotto recipe I will follow. But generally, I'm freestyle. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I you know, again, I'm thinking your dad would uh, would would appreciate that answer, right? He seems like he's in the freestyle zone. There is he's no a recipe. You just mm-hmm. feel it. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> thank you so much. That's the end of Kitchen Grill, and that's the end of our conversation. Now, I'd love to talk more and more. Thank you so much, Adjoa Ando. It's just been delightful and so informative, so fun. And so moving and profound, and the the things that you've you've talked about today are things that you know I think we can all take with us and and kind of and, and really hold on to in terms of embracing the wonder and enjoying what we've got. Bless you, thanks, Jimmy. It's been lovely chatting with you. You've been listening to Life on a Plate from Waitrose. I'm Jimmy Famarewa. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavi, and our guest, Adjoa Ando. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find lots more like it by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the series, go to waitrose.com forward slash podcasts.